Quite possibly one of the least understood, most isolating diagnoses is that of schizophrenia. Categorized as a long-term mental disorder of a type involving a breakdown in the relation between thought, emotion, and behavior, leading to faulty perception, inappropriate actions and feelings, withdrawal from reality and personal relationships into fantasy and delusion, and a sense of mental fragmentation. This mentally draining disorder is so broad that it's hard to diagnose or diagnose properly between being confused for other disorders such as depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder, the large stigma surrounding the quote-unquote horror stories throughout the years of horror movies, serial killers, and documentaries, those who are legitimately diagnosed with schizophrenia can face severe identity disorder, isolation, or much, much worse. While the title of today's episode mentions an infamous serial killer who was rumored to have this awful disorder, there is truly no excuse for his horrific crimes. Bodie Schofield, on the other hand, was only 11 when he was diagnosed with a rare form of childhood schizophrenia. But when it comes to both Berkowitz and Schofield, rumors and speculation are a big part of their stories. Throughout this podcast, we take a look at history through a psychological lens, aiming to dig deeper into the stories that historians share. All the while, a little bit of true crime is sprinkled into each episode. This is Mental History. Thanks for listening. If you're anything like me, you're never quite satisfied with a simple yes or no answer. There has to be a reason for these phenomena that we as humanity experience, and I'm always trying to learn new things. I have a huge passion for history and psychology, and have found that these two topics overlap in a way that to me can be considered an art form. When we study historical events, such as the Black Plague or the Great Depression, rarely do we ask the question, how did this affect society's mental health? I believe this is a question that should be asked for many reasons. Generational trauma can stem from catastrophic events that take a family who were once revered in their community and throw them into the depths of poverty and solitude. This type of trauma can live on throughout lineage for generations. It's important to learn where today's culture comes from. One form of studying this culture is through mental illness, and that's what we'll be discussing today. You'll notice that like a lot of early mentions of mental health, the majority of diagnoses throughout history were said to stem back to one thing, hysteria. We covered this in my Women's History Month episode, so I won't get into the history of hysteria here. What I will tell you is that throughout the 19th century, the terms insanity and hysteria were used often. I don't particularly enjoy using these outdated terms, but I feel it's important to see how far we've come when it comes to sensitive, person-first language in the world of mental health care. Schizophrenia was first introduced as a diagnosis separate from insanity in 1887 by German psychiatrist Emil Kraepelin, who coined the name Dementia Praecox. This newly named mental disorder has symptoms that included, but were not limited to, hallucinations, bizarre delusions, passivity symptoms, and thought disorder. While these are all broad symptoms, naming any diagnosis is a step forward in history. 
without a name, a diagnosis is as good as a guess as to what's going on within the patient's mind and body. After this initial discovery, research was conducted to further process the diagnosis and how it may appear in real-life patients. The name of schizophrenia was first introduced by Eugene Bleuler, who was a Swiss psychiatrist in 1908. The distinction, however, was that Bleuler hypothesized schizophrenic disorders as a set of mental disorders. Bleuler stated that schizophrenia is, quote, not a disease in the strict sense, but appears to be a group of diseases. Therefore, we should speak of schizophrenias in the plural. This was held as the truth along with his beliefs for multiple types of schizophrenia, ranging from average to severely detrimental, until more subtypes were created in the following decades. Like all of history, some of it can be a bit murky, especially when attributing scientific discoveries to certain scientists, or in this case, psychiatrists. With further research, further development into causes, diagnosis, and treatments were made. According to the Global Burden of Disease, schizophrenia affected 20 million people worldwide in the year of 2017. However, nearly half of those 20 million were not receiving any sort of treatment for their diagnosis. Treatment can range from cognitive behavioral therapy to medication and varies from person to person. Today, strides are being made in the world of mental health treatment, but unfortunately, schizophrenia has had the burden of stigma attached to it due to pop culture, fiction horror, and unfortunately, nonfiction true crime cases. David Berkowitz was born as David Falco on June 1, 1953. A Brooklyn native, he grew up understanding the difference between himself and his peers. David was adopted by his parents when he was just days old, when his mother surrendered him to them as she could not take care of him properly. His adoptive parents, Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, were Jewish-American, childless people who owned a hardware store in the Bronx. They were excited to have a child brought to them, if only they knew what he would become in the future. Alleged sexual abuse began when David was only five, and when David was just 14, his adoptive mother passed away. Any erratic behavior that he had shown before this was only exasperated by this devastating, life-altering event. At the age of just 24, David began what was a 13-month-long string of attacks, shootings, and murders throughout New York. The first victims of David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam, were Jody Valenti and Donna Loria. On July 29, 1976, the pair of 18-year-old girls were sitting in Valenti's double-parked Oldsmobile when a man approached the car and fired three bullets. Donna was killed instantly, and Jody, witnessing the murder of her friend, was shot in the thigh before the man walked away. This was just the first of many brutal killings throughout the Queens area. October 23, 1976 Carl De Niro, 20, and Rosemary Keenan, 18, were shot while sitting in a parked car in a residential area of Flushing, Queens. Luckily, both survived despite Carl's bullet wound to the head. November 27, 1976, Donna DeMassey, 16, and Joanne Lamino, 18, were approached on the street by a man dressed in military fatigues who produced a revolver and shot each woman once. Though shot in the neck, Donna survived without permanent injury. Unfortunately, though, Joanne was shot in the back and was permanently paralyzed by the attack. January 30th, 1977. 
Christine Frund, 26, and her fiancé, John Deal, 30, were shot as they sat in Deal's car in Flushing, Queens. John suffered minor injuries, but Christine was shot twice and later died in the hospital. March 8, 1977. Virginia Voskerchain, 19, who lived in the same neighborhood where Christine had been attacked, was shot in the head and died instantly. April 17, 1977. Valentia Serrani, 18, and her boyfriend, Alexander Asu, 20, were sitting in Valentia's car near her hometown in the Bronx when they were each shot twice. Alexander died at the scene and Valentia later in the hospital. This was the first incident where the son of Sam was left on a note with the killer identifying himself by an alias. June 26, 1977. Judy Placido, 17, and Sal Lupo, 20, were shot while sitting in Lupo's parked car. Both miraculously survived their injuries. July 31, 1977. Robert Vellante, 20, and Stacy Moskowitz, 19, were shot in Robert's car while on their first date. Robert would lose his left eye. Stacy would die 18 hours later after the attack, which was the first to take place in the borough of Brooklyn. On August 10, 1977, David Berkowitz was finally arrested for his crimes, confessing everything just the next day. Claiming a defense of insanity, David and his defense team pointed to evidence that he had paranoid schizophrenia. While this diagnosis isn't necessarily life-threatening, the future can look bleak without treatment. David claimed the son of Sam was a demon that lived inside of his head and told him to do the horrific things that he did. The son of Sam went down as one of the most infamous serial killers in U.S. history, and it remains a mystery to this day as to whether or not he was working alone. Some evidence suggests that there was at least one other person helping him commit these crimes, but no solid investigation has produced these answers. While it may seem to be a case of black and white or good versus evil when it comes to David Berkowitz, the same cannot be said for Janney and Bodie Schofield. You may recognize the Schofield name as Bodie's older sister, Janney, was featured for her rare, rare case of childhood schizophrenia at only six years old. Janney, whose full name is January, was featured on the Oprah Winfrey show for being such a young fighter of this disease. Oprah was not at the height of her career, but she still boasted an impressive 6.2 million viewers in 2009 when Janie was brought on as a featured guest. I hear you, you drew me some uh, pictures here. Can you tell me what these mean? That's a cat 400. That's a cat 400. Is he like a friend of yours? Or? Yeah. yeah. But he's actually the bad friend. He's the bad friend. Where does he live? Where does he live? He lives in Kalalini. They all live. They yeah. All do. How many people live in Kalalini? How many are they all people or all animals or what? All and sycamore. And sycamore, sycamore rat. Or cat? Oh, that's a cat for sure. I can see that. And twenty-four hours. Who's twenty-four hours? She's actually a person. She's a person, and she lives in Kalalini too. Now, where is Kalalini? Well, Where is it? I can't tell you. Why? Because, because Wednesday lives there and she's a 
And she's the worst one. What is she? Talony is on the border of my world and, and your world. Meaning this world? Yeah. Yeah. After the show's appearance, the Schofield family's fan base began to flourish. Supportive parents are always a good sight to see, and even more so when they're parents of special needs children. Bodie was just two at the time of filming and was already allegedly showing signs of severe autism that would later be diagnosed as schizophrenia when he was six. The tell-all documentary, Born Schizophrenic, January Story, was released to the public on May 4, 2010. This was a harrowing, real look into the trials and tribulations of a family with not only special needs children, but extreme cases. Bodie and Janny even had separate living spaces so as to not interfere with each other's progress, setbacks, or outbursts. Generally, to keep everyone safe, medication was dealt on a rigorous schedule, intermixed in interactive playtime, and learning therapy were all put together. Unfortunately for Bodie and Janie's parents, Susan and Michael Schofield, this was an all-consuming job. They gave up their normal day-to-day lives to help their children flourish within their limited environment. The stress would be enough to break anyone down, but Susan seemed particularly irritable at times. The family was featured on Dr. Phil in 2013, and Michael also wrote a book retelling the stories of what his family and Janie have gone through. Ultimately, the Schofield's marriage broke down, and Michael divorced Susan in 2015, moving several thousand miles away. This led to them being even more in the public eye than before, with all the drama surrounding them being brought back to the forefront. The family created a vlogging channel on YouTube to keep up with their fans and keep Janie and Bodie both in the limelight. There's a now infamous clip of Susan raising her voice at an 11-year-old Bodie, asking him which medication he needs and how much of it he needs. Bodie stares at the floor in almost a trance, catatonic state that one would come to expect from a child who is sedated. At such a young age, it's hard to know if Bodhi knows exactly what his medications are named, let alone which orange bottle does what to his brain and nervous system. Even if he was capable of making these decisions, should his mother not be the one making them, according to his care team of doctors, psychiatrists, and instructions? On top of this clip, there have been numerous alleged instances where Bodhi and Janie have both been treated aggressively by Susan. It's almost impossible to discuss family vlogging channels without mentioning the large controversy they carry. From the lack of privacy to predators on the internet, there's plenty of reasons to not post pictures and videos of your child, especially before they can consent. The topic of consent can be further muddled of those who suffer from severe mental illness, and this is especially true in Bodie and Janie's case. At this point, Susan had taken on the role of a full-time caretaker, which is admirable, However, there have been threads on Kiwi Farms and Reddit that dive into the children's lives even further. This includes Bodhi's medication dosage over the years, beginning when he was only a toddler. Allegedly, according to those findings, Bodhi was on at least 350 milligrams of clozapine, 750 milligrams of Depakote, and 300 milligrams of Thorazine. Sorry if I said those wrong. (laughs) The exact amount may be in doubt, 
But on YouTube, Susan had discussed her excitement of finally convincing doctors that Bodhi should be on both medications. According to the National Library of Medicine, combining medications can be beneficial for some with schizophrenia, but research on the subject is slim due to side effects that can manifest as a part of the trial. However, Bodhi was just a child. Medications such as clozapine are normally referred to as third-round drugs being used in later adolescence and adulthood. According to research, it is unusual for someone of Bodhi's age of 11 to be on such heavy medications, especially taken in combination with each other. In regards to these allegations, Michael wrote to the Dr. Phil show once more and traveled back to be with his family on their second appearance on his show. Her son is schizophrenic. Do you need medication, yes or no? You are not competent to make a decision about what medications he needs. Then you provide me the doctor who is. In this episode, Dr. Phil, who is problematic in his own ways, but we'll save that for another episode, told Susan that he would help her, Jenny, and Bodie with comprehensive therapy if she deactivated the family's YouTube channel. Susan protested at first, but then she finally agreed. It seems like the channel has not been reactivated, and both children were removed from Susan's custody the week of March 10th, 2019. The most recent update, however, shows that Jenny has moved back in with her mother at the age of 18, but was flourishing without her. Time will tell whether or not these accusations are true, and I hope the future is kind to both Jenny and Bodie. As always, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and any updates on this case, I will try to keep in touch. And I'm thinking about doing some update episodes every once in a while. Uh, anything you want to request, reach out to me, contact at creationsbyvi.com, or check out my other work, my art, my Etsy shop, anything you want. Thanks for listening.